The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, as that song says, I, I pray this morning that our, our, our souls can be stilled and that we can know your peace. We can know the peace that we have with you through your son. Lord, in some sense, I, I, I pray that we feel the, the longings of our soul for peace. I pray that we would not allow the world and its lies and, its, and its, um, all of the things that it, it, it throws at us to say that it will satisfy our souls, that it will give us peace. I pray that we actually feel that those things are incomplete, that those things are unsatisfactory, so that we will look to you. Lord, as we get to look at your word, as we get to focus our eyes on, on Christ, I pray that you would allow us to understand our need for you, understand our overwhelming need, that no amount of trying, no amount of good works, no amount of, of struggle on our own part can satisfy the, the gap that is between us and you can satisfy the wrath that you have for our sins, can satisfy the need that we have. I pray that as we look at your word and we look at your son, we can see that Christ does satisfy all of that. That in him we can have peace with you, that in him we have hope, in him we can rest, not because of our life, but because of his. Lord, just be with us now as we look at your word. In your son's name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the book of John, but before we go there and before we get the sermon started, I have some announcements or a couple of announcements for us. On a seat next to you, maybe in your own seat, you have one of these cards. If you don't have one of those, there's a couple on the front row. There's also some on the back. These cards are for you, but they're for you for a purpose. We've been talking uh, around here recently about our desire for our body to be used as lights to this dark world, as our body to be used to bring people to Christ. I mean, that is what the Christian life is all about. The call that all of us have as disciples is to go and make disciples, is to go and proclaim the name of Christ. And we know that that can be really intimidating to start up a conversation with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends, whomever the Lord has put on your heart. And so uh, we just recognize that the season that we're in, the Easter season, is a really great opportunity for us, a really easy pathway to the gospel. You know, around here, um, or rather in, in, in the U.S., there's, there are those people that are known as the Christmas and Easter Christians. I'm not going to throw any shade towards them. It's one of, Easter is one of these holidays that it's, people have it on their mind, we should probably go to church. So our thought is, let's capitalize on that and invite some people here so that they can hear about Christ. So this is an invitation for you. This is not necessarily a reminder that's to be stuck on your fridge. This is an invitation that whomever the Lord places on your heart, give this to them and just say, hey, are you planning on going to a church this Easter? And if so, we, I'd love you to come with me. So uh, we're hoping that people can come to our Easter service through these. Now on the back, I guess this one is an invitation. They can come to both, but we are having a Good Friday service. So if you will, mark down these dates in your own personal calendar and then pass this invitation along to somebody that the Lord has placed on your heart. So that's the first thing. The second thing that 
that, I want to do is thank Jeremy and Brennan for stepping in, for uh, continuing in our study of the Gospel of John the last two weeks as a pastor. I am so thankful that I get to serve alongside both of those men and that I get to rest and just allow them to carry the word um, as they, they did so well the last two weeks. With that, I want to turn our attention to the Gospel of John chapter 6. We've started a new chapter for those new in our midst. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and the whole idea of the Gospel of John is to meet Jesus. This Gospel writer, John, being one of Jesus' disciples, set out in his life. He had to write down this book so that as many people as possible could hear about the person of Jesus, because Jesus is the absolute best person that ever walked this earth. It, he will change your life, and John is set out to tell you about the story of Jesus. And we have made it to chapter chapter 6 in John, and chapter 6 in the Gospel of John is turning out to be one of my personal favorites. I've said along the way, there are some passages that I've been really excited to preach, um, and I, I'm just looking forward to them. John 6 was kind of a surprise, because it's, it's showing us in so many ways how Jesus is better than Moses, how, how Jesus is in fact the Son of God. Last week, uh, Brennan spoke on the feeding of the 5,000. And this is a miracle. It was a miracle that, that is foretold in every single gospel where these people went out into the wilderness and Jesus fed 5,000 people. They then collected the leftover loaves and fish at the end and there was 12 basketfuls. And then John keeps going with the story. And our passage today is kind of an odd one. Our passage is going to be Jesus walking on water. And the reason that I say it's an odd one is because it kind of interrupts the narrative that's going on in John 6. For the rest of the chapter in John 6, you know, and, and the subsequent weeks, we're going to be looking back at the, at the narrative of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Here, John sticks in kind of an odd miracle, Jesus walking on water. Now, John is not the only person who sticks this miracle in, but not all of the gospel writers stick this miracle in. See, Luke he tells of the feeding of the 5,000, but then he doesn't mention Jesus walking on water. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John mention that he's walking on, on water. So it, 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 it allows us to ask this question, because Luke didn't, but Matthew, Mark, and John did. What significance does this miracle have? Why is this episode, why is this event, why is this story so important that when John was telling his gospel story, he had to put in the fact that Jesus walked on water? There's also a, a um, kind of a different question we could ask. All the, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, all speak about Jesus walking on water, but they all emphasize a little different thing. There's, if, if you look at the accounts, like in Matthew 14, Matthew talks about Jesus walking on water, but then he has this like other episode about Peter joining him on the water. You guys can think of this where Peter goes, I want to go out there with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, you can come out. And then, and then Peter begins to sink under the water and Jesus goes, oh, you of little faith. Well, then Peter, or then Jesus gets Peter back into the boat. Well, so Matthew emphasizes that Peter joined him on the water. Mark emphasizes that Jesus looked out from the mountain that he was on and saw that his disciples were slowly making it across the Sea of Galilee and wanted to go join them. And, and then it says that he wanted to walk past them, but it's like the disciples spotted him. It's like, wait a second, Jesus, you're there. And then John 
adds this really thing, this, this really interesting feature where it goes, they were immediately at the shore. So it, it is interesting that, that this scene is, is seen in three of the four gospels, but the different gospel writers emphasize a different thing. It all has the basic storyline, but today we get to look at why in the world is this story put in scripture. So first, I just want to read this story for us, and then we'll jump into it. It says this in uh, 6.15, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, because if a man just multiplied bread and fish, your first thought is, ooh, we can capitalize on this. That guy needs to be the ruler. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they were in the middle of the sea, Jesus, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. And they were frightened because that's not normal. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Just some background stuff. The fact that the Sea of Galilee was rough and the wind was blowing was not a, uh, an, an odd thing to these fishermen. I mean, consider most of the disciples were fishermen. They spent their life on the sea. And the Sea of Galilee is below sea uh, level. And so the water is warm. And when the cold air comes over top of it, I'm not a meteorologist, so somehow clouds and winds are formed. So these winds coming up is a normal thing. Now, what isn't normal is for somebody to be able to look out from the mountain that they are on, Jesus, and say, look, that boat is taking a really long time to get over to the shore. I'm going to go join them by walking on the water. The story is very simple. I, I don't have actually a lot more to unpack from the story. I mean, the, the disciples got in a boat on one side of the sea. They were traveling to the other side, to the Capernaum side, they were rowing their boat because of the waves, and Jesus walked on the water. Now, Jesus is flesh and blood like you and I. He is truly God, but he is also truly man. So this isn't like a holograms on the water. This isn't like he appeared on the water. He is walking on the water. I know that that blows our minds because we don't walk on water. We sink in water, but Jesus is walking on the water. And when these disciples saw this, they were afraid. And Jesus says, very simple, don't, don't, don't be afraid. It's me. And he came into the boat and immediately the other part of this miracle is immediately the boat was on the, was on the land to which they were going. I don't even know what that means. Like, did they just realize they were there? Did all of a sudden, poof, the boat was there? I don't know. The commentators don't, don't talk about that. The story is simple. Jesus walked on water. But why did Jesus walk on water? It's not so simple. It's also not so simple to think about why did John feel the need to tell us that Jesus walked on water? Just consider the fact that when John sat down 2,000 years ago to write this gospel, he left stories out. This is not a full chronological account of all that Jesus did. We have seen him jump over things before in order to, to emphasize what he wants to emphasize. We know that the Holy Spirit was behind him, empowering him. And, um, and uh, oh shoot, now what's the theological word that I'm looking for? 
It's not coming to mind. And I didn't put it in my notes. I, I was thinking about it before. Inspiring him. That's it. It was inspiring him to write down these words. See, pastors have brain farts as well. Inspiring him to write down these exact words so we can ask the question, why was it that John and the Holy Spirit were inspired to give us this story in this place? Why did John interrupt the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the response to the feeding of the 5,000 by telling us that Jesus walked on water? Well, here's how I want to handle this today. Normally, the way that I will try to craft a sermon is to kind of talk it through, to share the story, to paint the picture, to all bring us to the conclusion together at the end so that we can all kind of get to the application and, 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 and understanding of why that parable, why that story was there. Well, I don't want to do that this morning. I actually want to show you my cards at the beginning of the sermon and then reverse engineer it so that we can understand how we got there. I want to give you the answer of why at the front end. So here it is. Why did Jesus walk on water? He walked on water so that we can see him as the source of our true salvation. Jesus walked on water so that he could show us that he entered into the storm of life with us, reminding us that when he is near, we don't have to be afraid. That his presence strengthens us for our trials that we face and encourages us not to forget that our biggest problems we have have already been solved. So once again, why did Jesus walk on water? Jesus walked on water so that we can see him as the source of our true salvation. I want you to just put that off to the side for a moment. That, we're going to come back to that. But I want to ask you another question. Why are you here this morning? Why did you get up, make your breakfast, get dressed, get in a car, maybe fight with your kids, maybe have to look at the directions to walk in this door to sit in the seat that you're sitting in this morning. For those on live stream, why did you get up and log in and watch the service going on? I could even say for those who are gonna be listening to the podcast later, why did you log on to this service, on, onto this app so that you could listen to this audio? Let's even kind of expand that more. Why, as Christians, do you struggle against the world and follow Christ? Why do you live as a Christian in a world that hates everything that we do because we point out it's darkness? Why do you fight the sin that you so enjoy? Because don't we all enjoy that sin? Why do we draw lines on particular issues that cause us so much pain. Why are you a follower of Christ? It's a question that I think we have to stop and ask ourselves every now and then. Because we can just get into these normal flows of schedule and traditions and, and you'll go, well, why are you here? And you go, because that's what I do on Sunday morning. Maybe some of you go, why are you here? Because my parents drug me here. Maybe for others you go, why are you here? Because I I've always gone here. But why are you here? Or maybe we can ask it differently, more dogmatically. What are you looking to get out of God by being here? That's a little harsher question, isn't it? A little harder to handle. What are you using Christ to get? So often when we come into 
church, when we approach Christ, our Christian life is surrounded by that, that thought of what are we using Christ for? And I, I, I'm not meaning to necessarily poke anyone in the eyes here, and I know that using language is hard, but I'm using this use language because when we use people, we're looking to receive something from them and have no intention of giving back. And when we approach Christ, we approach him very much in a using way because we're looking for him to give us, we're looking to him to give us something, but we have nothing to give back to Jesus because Jesus doesn't need us. Jesus does not offer us grace and mercy and the gospel because him and God sat up there in heaven and went, oh dear, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose something in me. I need them to need me. He, he doesn't need us. God would be God if the gospel was never here. God would be God if he saw Adam and Eve sin in the garden and sin into the world and his creation was marred and he went, well, I'm just going to judge those two people for their sin and look like that didn't work because my, my character demands that I punish sin, so I'm going to punish them. He didn't have to offer us this gospel. So when we approach Christ, we are approaching him in a way of what are we looking to get out of him? It's so easy for us to start in our Christian lives to think about us using him. I'm here so that he'll fix my marriage. I'm here so that I can feel better about myself. I'm here so that my anxiety will be lessened. I'm here so that I can think that I'll go to heaven. I'm here because there's something inside of me that says I should come here. But all of that is this using language. So, you know, let's, let's soften this some. Why are you looking to him? And I ask this question because it's so easy for us to slip into looking to him for the wrong things. And I ask this question because this is the exact question that Jesus asked the crowd. I want to read a little further in our story. Jesus walked on water. That's, that's what happened. And on the next day, this is verse 22 of chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. I'm sure the way this went down is the evening before they saw the 12 disciples get into a boat and they saw that Jesus was not among them. So they thought in the morning we're going to be able to find Jesus and seek him again and talk to him again and get something from him again. And the next morning they got up and went, no one can find Jesus. Where is Jesus? They went, well, I mean, the boat went over there at the 12 disciples, but we don't know where Jesus went. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now this crowd of 5,000, I don't know how many made it across the boat. I don't know how many boats were there. This, uh, as many people from this crowd of 5,000 who were like, wait a second, Jesus was here yesterday. We got to go find Jesus again. Gets in the boat, travels across the sea. And when they found Jesus on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, did you walk around the sea last night? Was there another boat that came? Can you imagine when they ask his disciples, how did Jesus get here? He walked on water. Huh? He did what? How did that work? And Jesus answered them. 
He doesn't even ask them. He doesn't ask them a question. He, he, he answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to them, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We're going to pick up on the rest of this narrative next week. Jesus doesn't even bother to ask them a question of what are you seeking? He, he doesn't ask them the question, why are you here? It's essentially the question I just asked you. He knows their heart. He tells them why they're here. You're seeking me not because you're looking for eternal salvation. You're seeking me not because you're looking for that aching of your soul, knowing that you're separated from God to be remedied. You're seeking me because I fed you, because I made your physical earthly life better. You're seeking me because you're essentially functioning as if I'm a genie in a bottle. Okay, Jesus riddle me this. How can you make my life easier? Can you do this for me? Jesus goes, that's not why I've come. I know you're looking for earthly satisfaction, but I'm not looking at your earthly satisfaction. I've come for something far greater, far deeper, far more intense. We have to focus on the timing of these things for a minute. Because this focus on the greatest need is very timely in their own mind. Think back to where Brennan kind of opened us up last week at the timing of these things. We don't know how much time went from John chapter 5 to John chapter 6, but John made sure that we knew the timing of John chapter 6. Verse 4 says this of John chapter 6, Now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was at hand. I have a question for you. When I say February 14th, what do you think about? Valentine's Day. And when you think about Valentine's Day, what do you think about? Your loved ones. Think about your spouse. Think about chocolate. Think about flowers. Uh, Full disclosure, I understand some of you think about sadness because there's that reminder once again that that isn't there, that you see other people celebrating something that, that you long to celebrate that haven't celebrated. But regardless, every time February 14th comes around, your mind goes to Valentine's Day. We, we set up these, these yearly celebrations to remind us of these things that we want to memorialize in our life. Valentine's Day is one of those things. Christmas is another. Why do we play Christmas music leading up to Christmas? So that we get in the Christmas spirit. Why do people celebrate? Not me, but some people celebrate when pumpkin spice lattes come out because we go, oh, it's getting to be uh, winter time. Why do we celebrate when birds are chirping? Because it reminds us spring is coming when the warm weather. For some kids, you think when's the pool gonna open? Even communion that we're gonna take here in a few minutes reminds us of something. We place these, if you will, roadblocks in our life so that we can have a certain mindset to remind us of, of this truth that we're trying to hold on to. The Passover for the Jews was a yearly roadblock. Now, when I say Passover to you, I'm not exactly sure what you're going to think about. Maybe you're going to go back to Exodus, which is where we're actually going to go in a minute and, and think about um, 
the Lord passing over those Jews that had the blood on the doorposts. But for these Jews now, when they thought about Passover, there was a very clear set of thoughts that would go on. They, they, they clearly had been in a certain headspace, if you will. They had been talking about certain things. And the things in which they had been talking about during this time all celebrated the miraculous events surrounding the saving of Israel. And, and in particular, the events of the Passover and the wilderness. I mean, they would be thinking about Moses. They would be thinking about the Red Sea. They'd be thinking about the 40-year wandering that they went through. Their mind would very clearly be in tuned to thinking about this, all of the things that God did for them in Exodus. In fact, probably they read verses like Deuteronomy 18:15 and turn there for a minute. Because as parents would be telling their kids, here's why we celebrate this every single year. As, as the, 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 the priests and, and the Levites and, and the scribes and the Pharisees would be recounting all of the stories that, that would go down. They would go to passages like Deuteronomy 18, 15, and they would say this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when they said, let me not fear again the voice of the Lord my God and see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words on his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that they command him. When they thought of the Passover, their minds immediately went to a prophet is coming that is going to be like Moses. One day Jesus is going to bring somebody who is going to save us from our pain and misery and slavery, just like Moses saved Israel from Egypt. They would tell stories about the past, anticipating the future. They would look forward to the day when the great prophets would come again and they would direct the people to stand up to injustice. They longed to be back under the ruler of a great king like David. They would anxiously await another high priest like Aaron to lead them in worship again. I say all this, their minds, when they entered into John 6, into this Passover time, their minds, these Jewish minds would be longing for, when is God going to send somebody who is going to save us and, and bring us back to the good old days like Moses? The Jews thought appropriately, we need a second Moses. We need somebody who is going to save us. In their minds, the Egyptians had been re replaced by the Romans. This is why when, when, when Jesus, this is, this is later on in, in, in the gospel and in the other gospels, when Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's gonna die, Peter pulls him aside and goes, whoa, wait, hang on, wait a second. That's not how the story goes. You don't die, you save us from the Romans. They thought that their physical slavery had been replaced by political slavery. So they were looking for somebody who was going to come in and free them just like they were freed from the Egyptians and give them a freedom just like they had when they were in the wilderness and in the land of Cana. And all of a sudden they see this guy being able to turn, multiply bread and fish and turn water into wine and to heal people who are sick 
and to make people walk who are lame and to, in one sense, read people's minds and to raise people from the grave. And they thought, the great prophet has come. My life is going to be better. But they were looking for Jesus to do the wrong thing because they were following Jesus not for their spiritual salvation. They were following Jesus simply for their physical, their physical salvation. I want to go back to the story of walking on water now. With the mindset that these individuals, these Jews are primed and ready to see the significance between Jesus and Moses and see him as a greater Moses. I have one additional place to turn, Exodus 14. I so enjoyed studying through the Exodus because I knew that it would set us up for so many moments here in the Gospel of John. We didn't, it wasn't just happenstance that we studied that before we studied the Gospel of John. In the, same way that, in the same way that in several years, however long it's going to take us to get us through John, when we're in Hebrews looking back at all of it, that's on purpose. There are so many moments of fear in the Exodus story. There's so many moments when the Israelites just get to a point and go, God, I don't know what you're doing here. How are you going to save me? In so many moments that in their fear, their first thought was all is lost. God cannot handle this. Exodus 14 was one of those moments. Now, before we read this section, I want to remind you all of the things that the nation of Israel has seen. Moses has seen the burning bush. Moses has dropped his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake and it ate the other snakes and they picked it back up again and it was a staff. They have seen 10 plagues, the last of which was uh, you know, unimaginable where the spirit of the Lord hovered over and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians or the firstborn of everyone who didn't have the blood over the doorpost. The Israelites, if they see nothing else, should come to a point and go, I don't know what God is going to do next, but he can do whatever he wants. But even still, they get to the edge of the Red Sea. They have been freed from the, from the nation of Egypt and they get there in verse 10, chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would, be, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I mean, listen, it has been days since they were in, in slavery and they're already saying it would be better if we're back in slavery. No, it wouldn't. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you shall see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Fear not and stand firm and see the salvation of our Lord today. In the midst of their greatest fear, this army, this unimaginable army that they could not 
defend themselves against was bearing down upon them, Moses turns to them and says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of your Lord today. And how did he save them? He split the Red Sea. Another miracle that is unimaginable. How did that work? He split the Red Sea. And they walked through on dry ground. And then as the army was also going through the Red Sea in the midst of the waters, God had those waters collapse upon them and they never saw that army again. The Red Sea illustrated for the nation of Israel, listen, I can do whatever I want. Listen, there are no barriers to my salvation. Listen, when you are with God, you can fear not and stand firm and see the salvation of your Lord. The Israelites were stuck with Egypt raging to devour them. And the disciples were stuck in the sea with the winds blowing against them. But guess what? We're stuck looking down the barrel of God's wrath. We're stuck fighting against a number of trials and tribulations in our life daily. I don't know what those trials are in your life right now. I don't know what that thing is in your life that you hate, that you are afraid of, that you are in pain over. I don't know what that thing is that you're like, Lord, help me, how can I get out of this? But here's what I can say. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you. Here's what one commentator said. At the height of their trial, speaking of of the disciples in the boat, when they were fearing the wrath of the sea and, and seeming uncertainty of death, the disciples heard Jesus say, it is I, do not fear. This parallels with what Moses told the people on the eve of the Red Sea crossing. Do not be afraid, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He will accomplish for you today. The implication is clear. We have nothing to fear so long God is with us and he is with us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Going back to John 6, why did Jesus walk on water at this seemingly almost insignificant miracle so that he can remind us that he is the source of our true salvation. Jesus walked on water so that he could show us that he enters the storm with us, reminds us that when he is near, we do not have to fear. His presence strengthens us for the trials we face and encourages us not to forget our biggest problems have already been solved in him. I don't know what you're going through. I don't. I don't know that that aching of your soul, but here's what I do know. Jesus is the only source of salvation. You know, it's interesting. Atheists say that there, there is no God. They just reject him outright. Deists say that there's a God, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care the struggles you're going through. Christians say, the gospels say, there is a God and he saw your struggle and he entered into the storm for you. 
to save you from the storm that you could not save yourself from. Do you realize that when, when the only hope that we have in life and death is Jesus Christ, you can try your hardest to overcome whatever struggle or trial or, or fear you have. You cannot do it. But Christ did. When Christ took on flesh, he entered into the storm of humanity, the trials of this world. He entered in and he took on flesh so that he could bear our sins on the cross. He took on the wrath of the storm that was going to devour us. And then looks at us and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Fear not. Your salvation is in me. What John 6 will show us is that Jesus is the prophet that the nation of Israel has been waiting for. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That Jesus is our salvation that the prophets of old have declared and that in Jesus we can rest. Do you realize that up to this point, the Jews could not rest? The Jews had to wonder, have I done enough? What's gonna happen in my life? Where do I need to go next? The Jews were living in this thought process of it's not complete yet. They could trust in the fact that it will be complete one day. We as New Testament believers don't think in those terms. We get to look back at something and say, it is finished. The storm has been consumed, has been poured out, has been dealt with in Christ. Which leads us to communion. Another memorial that we place in our life, another speed bump that is always here to remind us of that fact. If, if you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, if you've come to the end of yourself and you have said, Lord, I can't do it. If you've cried out like these disciples cried out in a boat, Lord, save us because we are not gonna make it to the other side. I wanna remind you, you can rest in the finished work of Christ. With this table that we are going to take today, what, what it stands here as a declaration to us that, that we are good before God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in us. But if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe you're here because a friend has brought you and, and you're, you know, all of this, this, this church language, this Christ language, this gospel language is, is foreign to you. First, welcome. We are so thankful that you're here. But we'd ask that you just let these elements pass you by. This is a family meal, if you will. This is for the family and, and, and not... We don't want you to take it because we don't want you, it to confuse you. We don't take this in order to be saved. We take this to celebrate the salvation that we have. So just let these elements pass you by. With that, I'll pray and we can take communion together. Lord, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you entered into the storm with us and for us. Thank you that we can read the Old Testament and we can long like the Jews did for that perfect prophet, priest, and king to come. And we can look to you and say, it is you. Lord, I don't know what struggles are happening in, in our lives 
I know some, and they're heavy. But Lord, with all of them, bring us to a point when we give up. When we give up trying on our own and we rest in you and we look to you knowing that we can, when, when we are with you, fear nothing. Because there's nothing that can take us out of your hand. There is nothing that can overcome your saving work. There is nothing that is going to stand opposed to us when, when we are in Christ. Father, help us to continually rest in that reality. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.